This is the My Dark Path podcast. Two years ago, I completed the first script for My Dark Path, detailing the incredible history of the airship and one of its most famous inventors, Von Zeppelin. Before I started with the episode, I'd never contemplated that the topic of airships could be as complex and rich as it is. I was incredibly fortunate to work with two people, Nicholas Thurkettle and Alex Bagasy, on this episode. That experience reminds me of a basic truth. If you want to have a shot at being great at something, surround yourself with people who are smarter, more knowledgeable, and harder working than you are. Nicholas and Alex certainly meet that criteria. I'm grateful to them for everything they did to get My Dark Path off the ground. Anything you may like about it can be traced to their influence, and its flaws are entirely of my own doing. Now, working with Nicholas and Alex, we found stories of disasters and triumphs, squandered fortunes, and global media frenzies, all centered around airships. And after releasing that first episode, it was only pride that made me believe I had a good handle on the entire airship story. But during my research trip to Moscow in 2021, I found an aerospace museum that unveiled additional stories of innovators and their airships that I'd never read about before. But still, coming from that first episode, I already had two stories of airship adventures penciled into the episode calendar for 22 and 23, the Airship Italia and the Africa ship. Both are stories of technology, innovation, passion for discovery, and the power of human will. And now, as we're in the waning months of 2022, I'm happy to be able to share one of these stories now. In the 1920s, the world looked north to the final pole left unexplored. Harnessing the power of air travel in the form of dirigible airships, several crews attempted the journey. And while some returned home safely with their pride intact, others did not. This dark path will tell the stories of both, the successes and failures. Today, I'm sharing the story of the rise and fall of the airship Italia and its crew. It's hard to imagine a time when there wasn't an obvious choice when it comes to international travel. Every year, millions of people fly using commercial and private aircraft, the culmination of over 100 years of development. But at the end of the 18th century, hot air balloons were taking to the skies and capturing people's imaginations. A little over 100 years later, those balloons had transformed into massive airships. And unlike their early counterparts, these airships allowed for controlled travel over long distances. Airships at this time were the superior form of air travel and really competed only against passenger ships for traveling long distances. In an increasingly globalized world, people looked to airships as the future of transportation, warfare, and exploration. Soon people would be able to buy a ticket and fly from Europe to the Americas and back in a fraction of the time of a sea voyage. Military forces would be able to fly over their enemies and drop catastrophic bombs. It's safe to say that while the early hot air balloon captured the imagination of the dreamers, the airships captured the attention of masses and those who governed them. One of these dreamers was a man named Roald Amundsen. Born and raised by seafaring ship owners and captains on the southern shores of Norway, Amundsen's path was clear from an early age. He was not only inspired by his kin, but also by the writings of Sir John Franklin, a Royal British Navy officer and Arctic explorer. Amundsen later wrote of Sir John Franklin's narrative stating that during his early age he, 
quote, read them with a fervid fascination which has shaped the whole course of my life, end quote. In 1906, at the age of 34, Amundsen was the first to navigate a ship and crew through the Northwest Passage, a sea route that connects the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Five years later, he was the first to lead an expedition across the Antarctic ice to the South Pole. Amundsen, nicknamed by his subordinates as chief, was a strict captain and not one who accepted dissent. He was also a keen observer of technological advances. He saw innovations in air travel as the means by which he would accomplish his next great triumph, an expedition to the North Pole. And this is where our story truly begins, because one cannot tell the story of the airship Italia without including the airship Norge. With his next adventure in mind in 1914, Amundsen became Norway's first licensed civilian pilot. After all, he knew that he would not be able to sail a ship to the North Pole. Then he began possibly the most challenging part of his expedition, securing funding. Whether it be a ship, airplane, or airship, this trip would be incredibly expensive. The price of a single plane at that time would have easily added up to well over $100,000, and Amundsen wanted at least two of them. His income, generated primarily from lecturing on tours in America, would be insufficient to get his expedition off the ground. But after 10 years of pitching his expedition to private investors and governments, Amundsen still had failed to fund his expedition. It turns out that both private and public institutions found little value or promise in Amundsen's idea. And after all, there was little profit to be found in the Arctic tundra. Even after declaring bankruptcy, Amundsen's lavish lifestyle continued with creditors knocking at his door. It was at this time in his life that he was contacted by Lincoln Ellsworth, the son of an American millionaire industrialist. Ellsworth himself was a pilot and engineer, but most importantly, he wanted to bankroll Amundsen's mission to reach the North Pole. In exchange for joining Amundsen on the trip as a pilot and full partner, Ellsworth provided two planes, the N-24 and N-25. These were Dornier wall flying boats, specially designed for landing and taking off on water. But the planes were small and not designed to traverse long distances, so ironically, the two planes were sent by ship to Norway. More specifically, they sailed the King's Bay in a network of islands known both as Salbard and Spitsbergen. This archipelago was the perfect place to prepare for the expedition as it was located at the midpoint between Norway and the North Pole. It was here that they would establish a base camp and rebuild their aircraft with the help of local coal miners. And this was also the place where they were joined by four other members of their crew. It would be three men per plane for a 600-mile trip across the Arctic. No small feat. Ellsworth and Amundsen would navigate each plane. The pilots would be Riser Larsen and Leif Derrickson. A third member of the crew would be a mechanic, Oscar Omdahl and Carl Fucht. May 21, 1925 marked the departure date from Kings Bay. The flying boats were designed for water takeoffs and landings, but they were so overloaded that the crews decided to take off from the icy fjords as a precaution. Aboard the N-25 were Riser Larsen, Amundsen and Fucht, Omdahl, Ellsworth and Dietrichson crewed the N-24. Just after 5 p.m., the planes were in the air, flying north. 
Amundsen commented, looking down on the bleak ice, quote, I've never seen anything more desolate and deserted. A bear from time to time could break the monotony a little, but no, absolutely nothing living, end quote. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mew. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. After eight hours in the air and with half their fuel used up, Amundsen called for the two planes to land at the earliest safe space on the ice. Somehow, the crews had lost their position and hoped to get oriented once on the ground. The ice landing, though, did not go well. First, the planes landed so far from each other that a day passed before the crews could even see the other plane. And it took almost five days for the crew of the N-24 to make their way to the N-25. It was then the true nature of their situation was clear. The N-24 had been irreparably damaged during takeoff and then taken on water during their ice landing. The plane would not make the return trip. The six-man crew was then stranded in the bleak and expansive nothingness of the Arctic sea ice. They had little food. Amundsen later wrote, quote, In the utter silence, this seemed to me to be the kingdom of death, end quote. Amundsen and his crew knew that if they could not fly themselves out, that they would die there. Rescue would not have been an option due to the fact that Amundsen was notoriously secretive about his travel plans. He had learned early on that it was the mystery of exploration that captured the imagination of the public and sold newspapers. When they failed to return to Kings Bay, the international community went into a frenzy, stoked by the constant newspaper coverage of the events. There was an international outcry to attempt a rescue. With no option but to fly out, the crew set out to prepare a crude runway on the ice. The shifting ice forced them to restart their work several times. But finally, three and a half weeks later, they were ready to attempt their escape. They had stripped the N-25 of everything but the essentials and even brought extra fuel from the N-24. The six of them piled into the N-25. The makeshift runway proved to be just barely long enough, and the N-25 struggled into the air. Amundsen must have been both excited about their escape, but sad as he watched his prize, the North Pole, fade further and further away from him. Their flight home also ended early. The plane, already low on fuel, was now carrying three extra grown adults. Eight hours later, the crew was once again required to perform an emergency landing, this time in the frigid ocean waves off the coast of Salvard. Luckily, before long, they were found and rescued by a Norwegian whaler. As if to confirm how famous the crew had become, the first words out of the whaler's mouth when he saw Amundsen was, you're supposed to be dead. Amundsen, as it turned out, was far from dead and also far from giving up on his mission. 
Hi, I'm MF Thomas, and this is the My Dark Path podcast. In every episode, we explore the fringes of history, science, and the paranormal. So if you geek out over these subjects, you're among friends here at My Dark Path. Find us on Instagram, visit mydarkpath.com, and see our videos on YouTube. Next week, I'll release the newest YouTube episode about the haunted Taipei Hyatt. I also hope you'll consider subscribing to My Dark Path Plus on Patreon. For just $5 a month, you'll have access to an exclusive subscriber-only episode every month. We already have a back catalog of episodes all about topics of history, science, and the paranormal from the Soviet era of Russia. I'm calling it The Secrets of the Soviets. In fact, just yesterday I dropped a new episode about the suppressed Soviet UFO files. And every few months, subscribers get a free surprise gift, like books, t-shirts, and stickers. And just last month, every plus subscriber received a copy of my latest novel, Like Clockwork. But no matter how you choose to connect with me and my dark path, I'm so grateful for your support. So let's continue with episode 44, The Rise and Fall of the Airship Italia. Part 1 While the Amundsen expedition hadn't achieved its goals of reaching the North Pole or of accomplishing a transpolar flight, they did generate incredible media coverage and public interest. Aboard the salvaged N-25, the crew returned to the air on July 5th to fly to Oslo, Norway's capital. They were welcomed at the palace with a reception and dinner held in their honor, and upwards of 50,000 Norwegian citizens crowded the streets to welcome the returned heroes. Spending almost four weeks on the ice had given Amundsen time to think, and he arrived at two big decisions. First, he refused to ever put himself in a position to be stranded on the ice again, and the second was that airplanes would not be the means by which he would reach the North Pole. He shared these decisions with Ellsworth upon their return to civilization, and since airplanes were not the solution, they needed something bigger with far greater fuel capacity. Ellsworth had the answer. He told Amundsen about the N1, an Italian airship that was being sold for an astonishing $100,000, or about $1.5 million in 2022. And while the price was exorbitant, Ellsworth had suddenly come into a new source of funding. While the N24 and N25 crews had been clearing a runway on the ice, his father had died in June 1925, leaving him with a massive inheritance. Amundsen immediately sent a telegraph to the airship's designer, Umberto Noble. Noble was already a senior officer in the Italian military air service and was earning a reputation as an airship designer. The N1 would be Noble's second airship. So, less than a month after the failed mission, Amundsen, Ellsworth, and Noble met in Oslo, Norway. Following their meeting, Ellsworth agreed to purchase the N1 as well as appoint Noble its pilot for the next summer's expedition. It was there that the N1 was named the N1 Norge. Upon returning to Italy, Umberto Noble began preparing the Norge. He sent a crew of his engineers to Salbard. This crew had the unsavory assignment of working through the long and dark winter to build a hangar that would hold the Norge upon its arrival in Norway. 
And while Noble prepared the N1, Ellsworth and Amundsen focused on a different task. They spent a year stirring up a media frenzy. Almost every newspaper in the world had been printing stories about Amundsen and his expeditions. And now Amundsen had risen to another level of fame and the newsprint media treated him as such. He and Ellsworth sold the media rights for their coming expedition to news agencies. By the time the summer of 1926 arrived, the world was collectively on the edge of its seat. This method of fundraising was replicated by other famous airship trips, and you may recall from episode one, Von Zeppelin and the Airship, that the LZ-127 would make its famous round-the-world trip in 1929, partially funded by the Hearst Newspaper Corporation. The airship Norge sailed by boat from Rome to the base camp that had been constructed at Kings Bay on the island of Spitsbergen. It arrived on May 7, 1926, and was assembled in the hangar that Noble's men had spent the winter building. Four days after the airship's arrival, the crew of 11 and their supplies were ready to start the trip. And while the equipment and crew were ready, there were growing problems with the leadership. A rift had grown between Noble and Amundsen. This was caused by the fact that Amundsen had only ever wanted Noble to be a hired hand, and while Amundsen was the adventurer hero in the story, Noble and Ellsworth clashed over who would be the co-leader. And with that said, after the sale of the airship, Noble negotiated his way into being full partners with Amundsen and Ellsworth. This forced Amundsen to share the limelight and the glory that he had grown accustomed to having all to himself. There were also geopolitical elements. Ellsworth discovered that he wasn't purchasing the N1 from Noble as he first believed, but from the Italian government. The Italians wanted the expedition to bring glory to Italy, but also to Mussolini and the ruling fascist party. But by May 11th, Noble returned that the time for their departure to the North Pole had arrived. They had planned to leave at 1 a.m. when the air temperature would be the coldest and the Norge would have the greatest lift from the surrounding air. However, the departure was delayed when Amundsen Ellsworth and the Norwegian crew members arrived late. But finally, the Norge was in the air, planning to cover the 145-mile trip at an expected speed of 50 miles per hour. The Norge flew, reaching the edge of the ice pack, then over the silent, featureless vastness for hours. Some crew continuously walked around the Zeppelin, checking for gas leaks. Others monitored the large engines. This was not the luxury that would come to be expected of the intercontinental trips provided by von Zeppelin. The crew couldn't cook because of a risk of fire, and the cabin wasn't heated but at least protected the crew from the wind. Canteens of tea and coffee provided some warmth. Noble commanded the flight, collecting and synthesizing information from crew members who piloted and navigated. He was most concerned about the risk of ice buildup especially when the airship passed through fog. A buildup of ice would add weight, but also prevent flaps, valves, and other mechanisms from functioning. The Norge approached the North Pole at 1.30 a.m. on May 12th. Because of the time of the year, the North Pole experiences virtually 24 hours of daylight. The navigator used a sextant to mark the exact position of the North Pole, and Noble ordered the engines to be cut allowing the Norge to float silently about 300 feet from the sea ice. 
The event marked another first. Amundsen and another crew member, Oscar Whistling, were the first people to have been to both the North and South Poles. Reportedly, they shook hands to commemorate the moment. Now, the power struggle came fully into the open. Due to dangerous winds, they did not attempt to land the airship. They settled for a flyover with a short ceremony. Amundsen shared some words before dropping a Norwegian flag onto the ice. Ellsworth followed suit with an American flag. Then Noble unfurled a much larger Italian flag. This bothered Amundsen. After all, a large part of the airship's preparation was carefully calculating and distributing weight. This heavier Italian flag had been snuck aboard, and as the captain of the expedition, Amundsen saw it as a direct affront on his leadership. Noble was now literally and metaphorically casting a shadow over Amundsen's triumph. After an hour over the North Pole, the engines were restarted and the Norge started its return trip to civilization. But now the destination was Alaska, across an uncharted area where some hoped that new lands would be discovered. After the euphoria of the event, the crew was exhausted and started taking turns sleeping. But at this point, icing became a real danger. Ice was now forming on the outside of the airship and then would break off in great sheets or chunks, hitting the engines and risking puncturing the gas envelope. Noble reduced the speed to reduce the risk of catastrophic damage, but ice continued to form, especially at the front or bow of the airship. Ice even destroyed the antenna, cutting off contact with the outside world. Now the crew, after four days of travel, were exhausted, and they kept falling asleep on their feet. But soon the coast of Alaska came into view. But so did a new risk. Winds started buffeting the airship as they attempted to hug the coastline on their way to Nome, Alaska, their destination. To get a position reading from their sextant, Noble steered the Norge above the fog and into direct sunlight. The heat, though, immediately expanded the hydrogen gas. Valves started to work to vent the gas, but not fast enough. The Norge started to point straight up and rise quickly. The crew responded, albeit with some confusion due to their multiple native languages, shifting forward to rebalance the airship and save the gas envelopes from rupturing from too much pressure. But as they did so, the Norge responded and the bow pointed to the ground and the airship started to plummet. In just two minutes' time, the Norge had risen to one mile above sea level and then dove to just about 600 feet above the ground. At the same time, the wind blew them inland. At one point, the Norge came so close to the ground that another antenna was caught on rocks and was violently pulled from the airship. But finally, the Norge stabilized and continued down the coast. Once buildings came into view, Noble, Amundsen, and Ellsworth agreed it was time to land, even though they knew they hadn't reached Nome. But finally, the airship rested on the ground in the town of Teller, about a hundred miles from Nome. But they were one final step from safety. Once on the ground, Noble ordered the gas bags to be partially deflated, dislodging the remaining sheets of ice that had been built up on the envelope. Ice and empty gas bags started to collapse, sending the crew racing to the ropes to escape. 
The inhabitants of Teller, not expecting their visitors, still greeted the adventurers with cheers of excitement and congratulations. Their arrival was also marked by a three-page story in the New York Times. But now, their journey complete, the tension that had remained more or less under the surface exploded. The article donned Noble as the new Columbus and gave him far more credit than Amundsen felt was fair. As if to push his name back to the top of the conversation, Amundsen announced that he was retiring after a long and successful life of exploring. He then returned to Oslo, where he said he would enjoy his retirement and the praise of his peers. Noble, on the other hand, was swimming in glory. He'd just been given that prestigious title of the new Columbus, and this was a victory for him as an explorer, pilot, and engineer. After all, he was the designer of the airship Norge. Filled with pride, he traveled to New York, where he was met outside of Grand Central Station by over 400 Italian members of the Fascist League of North America, wearing their infamous black shirts. Their cries of adoration were heard by Mussolini all the way back in Italy. By the time Noble, the celebrity, returned to Italy, he'd not only joined the ranks of fascism, but he'd also been made a general. Noble's victory tour then brought him all the way to Japan, where he was hired to design an airship for the Japanese government. His skill in engineering, manufacturing, and piloting airships was now widely recognized in the eyes of nations who felt airships were the future. There was only one problem. Italy was not one of those nations. During Noble's time away from Italy, Mussolini's right-hand man and Marshal of the Air Force, Italo Balbo, destroyed and melted down one of Noble's almost completed airships. As Marshal of the Air Force, Balbo believed that airplanes, not airships, were the way of the future. Tasked with developing Mussolini's Air Force, he decided to reclaim some raw materials from the absent Noble. And when Noble heard of this tragedy, he began planning another expedition to the North Pole. He felt that his and Italy's triumph had been overshadowed by the Norwegians and the Americans. He decided that he would return with almost an entirely Italian crew to claim once and for all the North Pole for Italy. He returned from Japan with this plan in mind and began to build another airship, the N4 Italia. The airship Italia was almost identical to the Norge, but for an increased fuel capacity. Mussolini and the Air Force would not support the N4 project, and so Noble secured funding from private backers in Milan. Mussolini was not a fan of Noble nor his plan, and with that said, he was not blind to the fact that Noble had become a hero to the people. The fascist leader felt that it was a bad idea to tempt fate twice. But before he could deny Noble, he was counseled by Balbo to allow Noble to pursue his return to the North Pole. Balbo famously told Mussolini, quote, Let them go, for he cannot possibly come back to bother us anymore. End quote. Finally, with his ship built, Noble assembled a crew of 15 men who were all Italian save for one Swede and one Czech. Among them were three physicists, a journalist, several navigators, mechanics, and his pet fox terrier, Titina. Some crew members, including the Swedish meteorologist Finn Malgram, were present on both the Norge and the Italia. In the days leading up to their departure, Noble was visited by two world leaders bearing gifts. The first was Mussolini, 
He carried with him an Italian flag and a promise of a $20,000 bonus to land on the North Pole. That's worth about $350,000 today. You might think of this as the X Prize of the 1920s. Noble was then visited by Pope Pius XI, who brought a large oak cross, within which was a hollowed-out section that held a small piece of parchment. It read in Latin that the cross was, quote, to be dropped by the leader of the expedition flying for the second time over the pole, thus to consecrate the summit of the world, end quote. Before leaving, the Pope told Noble, like all crosses, this one will be heavy to carry. Part 2 The airship Italia departed from Milan on April 15, 1928. Their route would take them over Switzerland and then to Germany. Throughout the 30-hour trip north, the fortitude of the Italia was tested. Above Trieste, a city in northeast Italy, one of the airship's tail fins was damaged by strong winds. Fins are fundamental to keeping the airship stable, especially when turning and changing altitude. But the crew finally made it to Stolp, Germany, on April 16th. When they took stock of the situation, the crew realized how lucky they were to have arrived at their first stop. Hail had damaged the propellers and envelope. There was also damage to the tail fin. On top of that, they had expended the majority of their fuel in fighting the stormy winds. Repairs were slow to begin because the required parts and engineers needed to replace them had to come from Italy. But finally, parts and workers arrived in a week and the repairs would end up taking 10 days. While the team was grounded in Germany, an Australian explorer, Hubert Wilkins, completed a trip from Alaska to Svalbard by airplane. Wilkins was demonstrating the feasibility of using airplanes to explore the Arctic. This served as an embarrassment for the immobilized Noble and his airship. It was only made worse by a New York Times article that claimed it might be too late for Noble. It suggested that perhaps the accomplishment of reaching the North Pole had lost its shine and prestige. Noble would not accept that idea or failure. With spite and determination as his fuel, the crew completed their repairs, and the crew finally resumed their flight to Svalbard on May 3rd. The sky was clear and calm as the crew flew over Stockholm, Sweden. So clear, in fact, that the meteorologist Finn Malgram was able to see his family home. Noble permitted the ship to descend so that Malgram could drop a letter to his mother. This unusual letter delivery now accomplished, the weather suddenly took a turn for the worse. Strong eastward winds continued to push the northward expedition off track. After only one day in the air, Noble ordered the ship to be moored at Vadso, Norway. During that time, the area was swept with harsh weather conditions, including frozen rain and blizzard conditions. While this caused no severe damage to the airship, it continued to fuel Noble's feelings of embarrassment. After all, the world was watching as he attempted to prove that airships were the way of the future. On May 6, the Italia finally arrived in Kings Bay, but there was no time to relax. The Italia was significantly behind schedule and the airship was once again in need of repairs. Noble needed the Italia to be at its best for the numerous expeditions he'd planned. Noble had shared the glory of being the first to visit the North Pole, 
but he alone would be the first to widely explore and document it. Five days after the Italia's landing in Kings Bay, it was back in the air and headed north. The crew was in their positions with Noble at the helm. The excited energy of the adventure was quickly replaced by one of fear and anxiety. Within eight hours of leaving Kings Bay, ice began to form around the envelope of the airship. As it had on the journey of the Norge, this thick layer of ice threatened the safety as it increased the blimp's weight and hindered their ability to simply stay in the air. After a long journey filled with dangerous weather and damage to the ship, Noble decided to return to Kings Bay. His first attempt at the North Pole was a failure. After arriving in Kings Bay and then again repairing the minor structural damage, the crew took to the air. On May 15th, Noble led his crew on the 2,500-mile flight through the uncharted area of the Russian Arctic known at the time as Nicholas II Land, named after the last emperor of Russia. With clear and calm skies, the crew was able to gather significant scientific data. Malmgren was able to record meteorological observations concerning the weather and ice, while other members of the crew took measurements of magnetic and radioactive phenomenon. This was all done alongside the first geographical mapping of this part of the Earth. They then returned to base camp with relative ease. In the end, their second expedition was an absolute success, taking about 60 hours. The luck seemed to continue when they departed on the morning of May 23rd. High above the Greenland coast, a favorable tailwind offered them a boost on their journey north. After 19 hours of flying, they arrived at the North Pole. Noble and the men had prepared equipment to send a team down to the ice, but on their arrival, the once favorable wind was now making a ground deployment dangerous. The Italians instead circled the pole, while the various scientists and the crew made their observations. Finally, with their work complete, Noble led a ceremony to commemorate their success. To mark the moment, the crew gathered in the gondola and shared words and a drink. They then unpacked the objects that they planned to leave behind on the ice. First would be the flag of Italy and the flag of Milan. Then they dropped a medal depicting the Virgin of the Fire. This pendant was a gift to Noble from the citizens of a small Italian town named Forli. Finally, they dropped the large oak cross bestowed upon Noble by Pope Pius. Then they circled the pole one final time before heading home. As the pole faded into the clouds, Noble radioed to the base camp and proclaimed, quote, the flag of Italy again flies above the ice at the pole, end quote. The celebration was short-lived. After all, the crew had already been awake for 22 hours. While their trip north had been aided by tailwinds, the trip south was now being hindered by an aggressive headwind of up to 30 miles per hour. Noble later wrote, quote, wind and fog, fog and wind, incessantly, end quote. Noble began to worry about their fuel supply as they continued to battle the stormy skies. The worries then shifted focus as the crust of ice began to form around the airship's envelope once again. Then, about 53 hours into the flight, the imbalance of weight caused the nose to dip and the airship Italia plunged toward the ice. Noble ordered a burst of speed from the engines in order to lift the nose of the ship. But when that didn't work, he ordered a halt to all engines. 
And with the engines no longer providing thrust, their descent slowed and stopped just in time. Then the Italia started to gain altitude, but too quickly. Noble ordered a release of the gas in order to slow their ascent. At this point, he was receiving suggestions from other crew members in the gondola. One suggested that they continue to rise until they were above the clouds in order to reach sunlight. With the sun, they'd be able to get an accurate position, recover their sense of direction, and navigate home. Noble accepted this course of action and allowed the airship continue to rise. They remained above the clouds for about 30 minutes. All was in order once again. They'd been able to maintain altitude and find their heading. So Noble ordered the engines to be restarted and they began their descent back into the clouds. But this time, there would be no recovery. Shortly after re-entering the clouds, the airship began to lose altitude. But unlike before, nothing would halt this descent. Noble and the crew members in the gondola watched through the small windows, no doubt in horror and disbelief as the ice came rushing toward them. Part 3 What followed can only be described as chaos. The tail of the ship crashed hard, causing the cabin to break off from the envelope and then apart. Within the cabin, equipment and bodies flew about, crashing into each other before being thrown out onto the ice. Stunned but alive, they saw the Italia, now without the cabin and any control, but still in the air. Aboard were six crew members, clinging to the crippled craft. To their horror, the skeleton of the airship began to drift away, still flying but completely subject to the weather. One of the six still aboard was chief engine mechanic Ettore Arduino. Heroically, he began throwing boxes of food and survival gear onto the ice. He knew, as did the other five, that the wind would carry them away into the frozen Arctic to their deaths. The wind continued to blow, and the stricken airship passed from the view of the crew on the ice. Noble had landed hard on the ice, injuring his head and breaking his right arm and right leg. When he opened his eyes, he found a number of his men scattered nearby amongst the debris. He awoke just in time to see his beloved Italia drift and receding into the distance. In this nightmare scenario, it is likely Noble foresaw his own end here on the ice. Perhaps the only question was, what would be the cause? Would it be from the cold, from his injuries, or from looming hunger? But however it might come, Noble closed his eyes and drifted from consciousness, perhaps hoping that death would be swift. Whether it was the injury to his head or the fact that he'd been awake for at least 72 hours, Noble closed his eyes. But death did not come for him. He was awoken by other crew members who'd fared better during the crash. One man, Felice Trojani, was thrown into soft snow. He'd immediately jumped to his feet unscathed. Natalie Sassoni injured both of his legs when he was thrown from the cabin. Alfredo Viglieri and Aldoberto Mariano found themselves lying face up, unharmed among the ship's debris. Giuseppe Biaghi, the ship's radio operator, had wrapped a portable emergency radio in his arms before he was thrown into the snow. 
He and the radio both survived. Those who could walk quickly began exploring the wreckage in the hopes of finding their comrades. In the end, one crew member, Vicento Pamela, had died upon impact. There were now nine survivors on the ice. Biagi set up the radio and began sending SOS messages. One can hardly imagine the despair felt by these nine men. Stranded on the Arctic ice amongst the howling wind, the same wind that only moments before whisked their comrades away. The crew of the Italia was truly lost, though not without a bit of luck. The cabin had been stocked and prepared to deploy a team of men down to the ice, and the quick-thinking and selfless Arduino had added to their supply of food and equipment. They quickly erected an eight-foot-by-eight-foot tent to protect them from the elements, as well as the daylight. Then they huddled and hoped for sleep. When they awoke, there was the question, what now? The navigators had found their maps and navigational equipment, and they began the task of trying to calculate their position. Biagi continued to send out distress calls with his radio. The rest tended their wounds and took stock of their supplies. The navigators would soon find that the ice pack they landed on was drifting in the wrong direction. Base camp was south in Svalbard, but their calculations suggested they were headed east toward a remote region of northern Russia. By the end of day one, the group was weighing two options. Noble figured that the best course of action was to stay put and continue to radio for rescue. Zappi and Mariano, the navigators, believed that they should leave the crash site in order to find land. This would divide the crew, but those left would be able to possibly send help if they were rescued. Noble and the other crew members, immobilized by injury, did not favor this idea. By the end of day two on the ice, no decision had been reached. The next morning, when Zappi exited his tent, he discovered a fully grown polar bear. It was curious, exploring the wreckage dangerously close to the sleeping crew. Zaspi whippered as loud as he dared to warn them. Finn Malgren, the Swedish meteorologist, grabbed his pistol that had been found in a survival pack and snuck out of the tent. The sound of gunshots penetrated the desolate Arctic landscape as Malmgren brought down the bear. Members of the crew awoke, startled, but were soon relieved by the fact that this bear would now provide them with about 400 pounds of fresh meat. Their fear of starvation was overcome with hope, and their stomachs full, their attention turned to the portable high-frequency radio transmitter saved by Biagi. The transmitter was only ever designed for communications between the Italia and explorers deployed onto the ice. Now they needed it to reach the Cita de Milano, an Italian Navy ship anchored at King's Bay. So far, they had not received any response or acknowledgement from their distress calls. They were receiving sporadic messages sent by the ship, and at this point the Cita de Milano and its captain, Giuseppe Majoa, had coordinated with Norwegian officials and sent out search parties. But it was clear to the crew of the Italia they would be nowhere close. Some of the survivors became impatient. The radio clearly wasn't working, and they needed another option. Zappi and Mariano again suggested sending an able-bodied group to search for land and rescue. Noble, immobilized by his injuries and fading in and out of consciousness, accepted that as an option, unlike the day before when he forbade them. The navigators packed with supplies they could carry, and accompanied by Malmgren, 
began to trudge across the sea ice. Like the six men who disappeared into the clouds with the Italia, the three men faded into the harsh Arctic environment. But Biagi had not given up. He knew that he needed to reduce the radio's frequency and extend its range. The only way to do that would be to upgrade its antenna. The crew once again searched the wreckage for a metal that would serve this purpose. It was a slow process, but they had plenty of time. For days, Biagi and the crew tinkered and experimented with ways to strengthen the radio signal. The days of unreplied transmissions dragged on. They could listen to radio news and even the broadcasting station of Rome, but nothing they transmitted was ever heard. That is until June 3rd, their ninth day on the ice. Nikolai Schmidt, a Russian radio amateur, received the Italia's SOS. The surviving Italia crew and Nikolai were not able to maintain a stable connection, but they shared coordinates and brief instructions that Nikolai was able to pass along to Russian authorities. Within a day, the crew heard from a news bulletin that their message was received and being relayed to the Italian government. With the Cita di Milano already in the area, Mussolini sent four additional planes. But this was done quietly, after all. A rescue mission was only necessary because of a failed expedition. It is said that Mussolini favored the idea of leaving the men on the ice until he was swayed by one of Noble's friends in Milan. Mussolini saw the whole fiasco as a national embarrassment and wanted to keep it quietly under wraps. That, unfortunately for him, would not be the case. Making contact with the expedition ignited a frenzy around the world, at least in the countries that cared about such things. It was front-page news. The crew of the Italia was stranded somewhere in the Arctic, and they needed help. What followed is still to this day the largest search and rescue mission in Arctic history. In total, 23 planes and 20 ships from seven nations were dispatched for the rescue. Not only was it the largest, it was also the first polar air and sea rescue ever launched from the Soviet Union, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Italy. Norway alone contributed 10 ships and 4 aircraft. The airplanes were necessary to locate the men, but the exact plan on how to get them off the ice was still in the works. After all, conditions would make landing a plane difficult enough, let alone getting space for it to take off again. The Soviets took care of that problem by sending three powerful icebreaking ships. One of them was captained by Professor Rudolf Samoilovich, an Arctic explorer and personal friend of Noble. Upon hearing the news at a banquet in Oslo, Roald Amundsen announced to the room full of people that he too was ready to join the search. He, along with fellow pilot Leif Dietrichsen and a crew of four, departed from Tomso on June 18th. On the ice, Noble and the crew knew help was on the way. They would soon hear the hum of an aircraft passing over their snow-covered wreckage. They realized that this might be a problem. During their time on the ice, wind and blizzards had largely covered their camp in snow. So even if the skies were clear, it might be possible for a pilot to miss them. With that in mind, they covered their tent in red dye they found in the wreckage. Biagi continued upgrading their antenna with the hopes of creating a stable, outgoing signal. The camp must have been alight with hope and excitement, balanced by their sorrow for their nine dead teammates. 
On June 22nd, after about a month on the ice, the crew heard a familiar hum. Far in the distance, it was still unmistakable as an airplane. In fact, it was one of the four Italian planes surveying the area. The pilot, a man named Madalena, spotted their red tent and began to circle them. And while he circled, he recorded footage of the camp, footage that would later be used in newsreels around the world. He then dropped a case of supplies down onto the ice after carefully recording their coordinates. With a wave, he set off back to an airstrip to refuel. The case of supplies was all but destroyed when it fell onto the ice, but the survivors of the Italia didn't mind. They had been seen and knew they would be rescued. Later in the day, the familiar hum returned when Swedish and Italian planes passed overhead. The pilots circled and dropped more packages. This time, in addition to well-packed supplies, the crew found instructions. The message told the crew to scout for a location that would be sufficient to land a plane fitted with skis instead of pontoons. The crew members, who could walk, immediately began the search, and they quickly discovered a suitable area for a landing strip free from any large obstructions. They marked it and relayed their findings using the radio. The next day, Swedish pilot Inar Lundborg circled overhead. While other pilots had refused to attempt a landing, Lundborg was confident. He brought the nose of the plane down toward the ice and the crew said a prayer. They watched as he brought his plane down onto the runway, skidding on its newly outfitted skis. But there was no crash. He had landed successfully. Their rescuer was now on the ice with them, and he had a way out. Lundborg stepped from the plane and was met by the elated crew members. Their faces fell slightly when he made it clear that he was only able to take nobly. Now, nobody on the ice was happy about this. The crew wanted out, and nobly refused to abandon them. But Lundborg held fast. It was nobly or nobody. To this day, it's disputed why Lundborg refused to take anybody but Noble, even as they begged. Was it the glory associated with rescuing a celebrity? Might it have been an order from Mussolini? Some people hold the belief that Lundborg was hired by an insurance company looking to protect itself from a hefty life insurance policy Noble had taken out for himself. But no matter the reason, the plane had only one seat and Noble consented. Along with his dog, Tatina, he climbed into the plane's cockpit. Lungberg assured the men that he would return shortly before taking off back into the sky. Lundberg flew Noble directly to a Swedish base camp where the Cita de Milano was docked. There, Noble was taken in and given medical attention. With the first package secured by Lundberg, he refueled his plane and, true to his word, headed back in the direction of the crash. When he arrived, he circled the crash site again and lined up his landing. He tipped his nose below the horizon and went for it. But unlike before, his plane skidded and crashed, damaging it. It seems that his first landing was just a stroke of luck, and the second showed why the other pilots had been so hesitant to land. Lungboard survived unharmed, but added one more man on the ice in need of rescue. Lungborg was not the only rescuer who faced peril. During the weeks-long rescue effort, 15 rescuers lost their lives. Included in that number is Roald Amundsen and the five other men who he flew with. 
After their first exploration, Amundsen and Noble were far from friends, but it is clear that in the end the two had a hint of respect for one another. After all, it was Noble who told his rescuers over the radio, quote, I think you should put yourself entirely in Amundsen's hands as he is the only expert collaborating with you, end quote. Amundsen, unfortunately, never made it to Svalbard. He and his airplane, full of crew, were last seen by a fisherman who claimed to see them fly unevenly into a bank of fog. Throughout the summer, rescue parties were dispatched, and in the end, all that was ever found of Amundsen's final flight was a piece of the plane's pontoon and a gas tank floating off the Norwegian coast. The crew on the ice didn't know any of this, All they knew that the world knew where they were and was going to continue sending help until they were rescued. They had grown accustomed to waiting, which was made easier by the constant supply airdrops. On July 12th, after nearly two months on the ice, the crew was reached by one of the Soviet icebreakers, the Krasin. This feat of human engineering sliced through the Arctic ice and opened a hatch for the men to climb inside. Finally, they would be leaving the ice pack, their home for almost the entire polar summer. When they arrived in the ship, they were reunited with Zappi and Mariano, who had been rescued only a day before. The men looked particularly well-nourished for people who had been stranded on the ice for weeks, and they were also missing Momgren. According to then, Momgren had collapsed on the ice and urged them to continue without him. Now, this was difficult for the other survivors to believe. Not only had Malmgren been one of the fittest of the group, but Zappi was now wearing his clothes. The newspapers also found Zappi and Mariano's story difficult to believe. Similar to Arctic exploration, cannibalism was a hot topic in the newspapers at the time. One newspaper wrote, quote, Was the Swede eaten by the Italians? End quote. Noble, meanwhile, was adamant about joining the search team still looking for the crew who'd floated away in the airship's envelope. This was overruled by Mussolini, who commanded Noble to return to Rome. But unlike Noble's previous entrance into the capital, the government and fascist party were not welcoming back with open arms. In fact, one of the few things that eased Noble's return was that he was still regarded by many as a hero to the Italian people. The warmth with which he was welcomed was enough to shake off any remaining Arctic chill. Many thousands crowded to welcome him upon his arrival. But the warmth quickly ran out when he was confronted by Mussolini. Their first interaction reportedly devolved into a yelling match that nearly turned physical. Perhaps like decisions made in the final moments of the Italia's flight, Noble's fight with Mussolini would serve as the final nail in his political coffin— His strong advocacy for airships had garnered him many political enemies in Italy, including Mussolini's right-hand man, Balbo. These political struggles came to fruition when Noble found himself standing before an Italian commission of inquiry. The commission was harshly critical of him on just about every aspect of his command. It was the analysis of an Italian general, Croco, that the commission leaned on. General Croco identified that Noble's fatal error was continuing to fly the ship into the wind as they left the North Pole. Noble must have groaned at this. After all, it was the advice of a meteorologist Malmgren that had led him to believe the wind would relent. But such is the burden of command. 
In the end, the commission's conclusions sounded more like personal attacks on Noble than anything else. They stated that, quote, the expedition lacked an experienced pilot, possessing the train capacity which is to be acquired only by a long course in navigation. The precise responsibility for the disaster rests on the commander of the airship Italia for an erroneous maneuver. In all the conduct of the expedition up to the disaster and after, General Noble has shown himself to have limited technical qualities as a pilot and a negative capacity for command. End quote. Noble would unsuccessfully fight these charges for years before retiring from the Air Force in March of 1929. The commission failed to recall his long career of piloting airplanes and airships as well as his previous journey to the North Pole, during which he was the pilot. The commission also refused to take into account that, at the time of the crash, Noble had been awake for at least 72 hours. There was no debate to be had that Noble and the crew had made mistakes. But that being said, these errors were done in a high-stakes effort and a frightening situation and exacerbated by the mental toll of sleep deprivation. At a certain point without sleep, like the swirling winds of an Arctic blizzard, the human mind becomes clouded and incapable of finding solutions to even the most simple problems. Of the 16 men who embarked on the journey north aboard the airship Italia, eight would survive the crash and summer on the ice. The Italia itself was lost, either on the ice or now at the bottom of the Arctic Sea with the rest of its lost crew. Thank you for listening to My Dark Path. I'm M.F. Thomas, the creator and host. This story was prepared in part by Tyler Brown Ortiz. This is his first project with My Dark Path, and I'm delighted to have him on the team. Our creative director is Don Purdy. I'm thankful for them and the entire My Dark Path team. Please give us a rating and a review wherever you're listening. This really helps the show grow. Again, thanks for walking the dark paths of history, science, and the paranormal with me. Until next time, good night.